Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, Shabbat Shalom. We're uh, in a new mini-series on the book of Joel, uh, Yoel. Today's part two. We're going to finish up chapter one today. And as an overarching theme, the book of Joel can be seen as a guide to help prepare us uh, for the prophetic, messianic, end-times Jewish revival movement. Just as Yochanan Hamafiel, John uh, the, the Immerser, prepared the way for Yeshua's first coming as, as a friend of the bridegroom. Similarly, we too can call our Jewish people back to their Messiah and help prepare the way for his return. When our people call out to him, Baruch haba Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As a Messianic Jewish congregation, part of our vision and our calling is, number one, to proclaim the good news to our people Israel, God's chosen people, uh, and number two, prepare those who are believers to be pure and spotless bride, ready and prepared for the day of his coming. Joel 1 describes the terrible judgments from the Lord coming upon the nation of Israel in the form of natural disasters, uh, of a locust plague, uh, followed by drought, drought and, and famine and, and fires. God is using this to wake his people up, to cause them to turn back to him. The severity of the judgment is captured in the image painted in Joel 1, verse 8 on the overhead, uh, where Joel says, Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the bridegroom of her youth. So, so Joel here gives a picture of a bride in sackcloth. Now, that's an oxymoron. Uh, that's an opposite. Uh, a bride on her wedding day is never in sackcloth. That's not possible. The picture here is of a young maiden who had just said her vows, and before the wedding celebration is completed, the groom dies. The ceremony has occurred, they've been married, and suddenly he dies. And so she takes off her wedding dress and girds herself with sackcloth. That's the picture Joel is painting. Joel says, this is what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. It's this level of intensity. Joel's saying there's a crisis coming uh, that must become a top priority for all of us. We must understand the urgency of God's heart so that we at Skyim uh, can be effective intercessors. There's nothing more urgent to a bride than the crisis of a husband who's about to die. The Lord says, Israel, do you understand? The Lord is saying, America, do you understand? That the day of the Lord's judgment is coming. Unless you repent. Unless you repent, you'll be like a virgin girded with sackcloth. Wailing and lamenting and mourning for her husband. The husband of her youth. Because I, the Lord, he says, am going to remove everything from this earth that hinders wholehearted devotion to me. Whether that be outright opponents of the gospel or that be lukewarm uh, and nominal people within the church, within the Messianic synagogues, within the congregations. And the Lord says, you need to make prayer and fasting and wholehearted devotion to Yeshua uh, and seek him with, with all your might. You need to make this your top priority. And if you don't, he says in 10, 20, 30 years, the next phase after the locusts, the phase of Joel chapter 2 will break in upon you. The Babylonian army. A military invasion. So the Lord says, 
We need to, de- to develop uh, a corporate history uh, of prayer and fasting and repentance and intercession ahead of time. We all need to learn how to fast and pray and, and intercede uh, from the children to the youth, uh, to the young adults, uh, uh, to the priests. And by priests, that includes musicians, dancers, chazans, uh, intercessors. Then uh, he says this to the elders and to all the people. So we won't become a, a, we, won't, we won't be a novice in spiritual warfare when the crisis hits, when the bride puts on sackcloth. And note, by the way, the bride isn't the only one in this passage wearing sackcloth. Look at Joel 1, verse 13. Put on sackcloth, you priests, you kohanim, and mourn. Well, you who minister before the altar, come spend the night in sackcloth. You who minister before my God, for the grain offering and then the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. The famine is so bad, he's saying, they don't even have enough for a grain offering and a drink offering. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who, who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord. Alas for that day. For the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. By the way, there's a Hebrew word play going on here. The word for destruction is showed. And the word for the Almighty is, is here is, is Shaddai. Uh, so it's a play on words here. Uh, and note that this verse, verse 15, says destruction is not from the devil or, or from nature or from evil men, but from the Almighty himself, from Shaddai, as in El Shaddai. This is a very shocking and offensive statement. Next verse, Joel 1, verse 16. Uh, Has not the food been cut off before your very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of the Lord? The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has been dried up. How the cattle moan. The herds mill about because there's no pasture. Even the flocks and sheep are suffering. To you, Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness, and the flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up. The fires have devoured the pastures in the wilderness. Wow. Joe 1 here describes a series of interrelated natural disasters sent from God. And the crisis is increasing in its intensity from the locusts to the drought uh, to the famine to the fires. And in verse 15, he cries out, alas, there's a sense of shock and terror in Joel's heart because he understands what's happening. And he wants this extreme situation to be understood also by God's people. So that they would respond in such a way as to minimize the danger uh, and cause the disaster zone to be uh, transformed into a revival center, a place of blessing. Joel's warning Israel that it's going it's to get worse unless they turn back to the Lord, unless they turn back with fiery hearts of devotion uh, and total commitment and passion and love. Now, this word, alas, in verse 15, is very important. Look at Joel 2, verse 1. Joel says, famous verse, Below the shofar in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy hill. There needs to be a sound of alarm in the people of God. Now, question, when do you need an alarm? When you're asleep. <laughs> That's when you need an alarm clock, right? Joel, say, Joel is saying we are asleep and we need to wake up. 
Even as Yeshua said to his Talmudim in, in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, 40, could you not stay awake and, and pray with me for one hour? Now, when we're sound asleep and the alarm goes off, it's startling and it's offensive. Just like in Joel's day, the body of Messiah is asleep today. We're asleep. The Lord says, blow the shofar, sound the alarm, cry out, alas. This disrupts our routine. It cuts across our comfort zone. It's an offensive and alarming and disturbing message. Joel sees what's coming. He's trying to wake up a lethargic, sleeping people. People who think the disaster will quickly pass. And Joel says, no, it's only going to get worse. The locust plague is now turned into a drought uh, and then raging fires. And it'll get even worse in chapter 2 with, with the military invasion from Babylon. With the only hope being the people of God corporately lining up in unity, uh, in one accord, uh, in teshuvah, in repentance, and in wholehearted devotion to the Lord. And, and, and to oneness with God's heart. Because the Lord releases these plagues and these invasions as a judgment on his enemies and as a wake-up call to his wayward, lackadaisical, lukewarm, sleeping people. The Lord says the same thing in Deuteronomy 28, uh, verse 38. You sow much seed in the field, the Torah says, but you'll harvest little. Why? Because the locusts will devour it. Swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land. Likewise, in Amos, Amos 7, verse 1, Amos says, This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's shear had been harvested, and just as the late crops were coming up. Again, in both these passages, like in Joel, it says that the Lord himself is the one sending this crisis. Similarly, Revelation chapter 6, it's Yeshua, the Lamb, who's opening the seals and releasing the judgments. In the book of Revelation, we see supernatural work of the hand of God to create disaster, intended as a sign, as a wonder, as a supernatural work, with a message to be marveled and wondered at, to bring the people to Yeshua. And so this brings it now to a whole new level. It's not just natural disasters taking place, but it's a sign and it's a wonder. God is moving on the earth to communicate a wake-up call to mankind. Look at Deuteronomy 28, 47. These judgments have come upon you because you would not serve the Lord with joy and gladness in your times of prosperity. The Lord says, I gave you prosperity, but it did not produce gratitude and joy. It only produced in you a dull spirit. If you would have responded to my blessing with gratitude and joyful service, everything would have been okay. But your prosperity only produced a dull spirit, and now I'm sending you calamity. Indeed, Isaiah 45, verse 7, we read, I, the Lord, bring prosperity, and I create calamity. Amos 3, verse 6, when disaster comes to the city, has not the God caused it? These are hard words. Uh, in Joel, uh, verses 17 to 20 of Joel 1 detail this judgment. First comes the drought. Look at Joel 1.17. It says, the seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. So the, the picture here is the seed is planted in the ground, but it does not germinate. Why? Because there's no water. So the, the seed shrivels up. Verse 17 goes on to say, the storehouses are in ruins. Now, you and I don't grasp the magnitude of this verse. The storehouses are in ruins. Uh, because today, you know, with modern technology uh, and refrigeration, 
and the trucking industry and, and fertilizers and worldwide shipping and trains and planes and silos and warehouses. There's a great deal of food in reserve in our nation uh, with quick access from farm to supermarket, from supermarket to table. But there was nothing like that in Joel's day. So when the local storehouses were in ruins, it was absolute disaster. There was no hope of a fresh shipment coming in from another state, you know, by train or, or, or UNICEF emergency airlift or, or supplies being flown in. There was no refrigeration process. Uh, there, was no, there, was, there were no preservatives. There was no shelf life. If the crop failed, that was it until the next year. The storehouses stored wine and grain and oil. And verse 18 details not only the destruction of agriculture, uh, but the livestock as well. Look at Joel 1, 18. How the cattle moan. Uh, how the herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. The animals are pictured here as relentlessly seeking food. Verse 19 then describes the raging fires. Look at Joel 1, 19. Fire devours the pastures. Flames have burned up the trees of the field. In the midst of drought, lightning strikes. Uh, domestic fires get out of control. Uh, the wind blows. The fire spreads. Joel says the day of the Lord has come. There's both a direct supernatural intervention, such as the Lord sending out the locusts, and there's the natural processes of a fallen created order, such as the resulting famine and disease, the drought, the fires, societal breakdown. So what is to be our response? Because the Lord will progressively increase these judgments until we recognize and the world recognizes there is no solution apart from him and his Messiah. The Lord is going to put all the nations of the earth into divine checkmate until they turn and seek him. And the Lord's favor is only released, Joel says, through long-term national or corporate wholeheartedness. So before the coming crisis comes, we need as a congregation, as a covenant community, to return to our first love and to press in with fiery, heartfelt, lovesick devotion to Yeshua, our bridegroom God, the lover of your soul. This is the only answer. The Lord is raising up communities today who are committed to fasting and prayer and, and energized uh, by, by, by intimacy with Yeshua and passion for him and his kingdom. That's Chaim. Will we say yes to the Lord and devote ourselves to his calling? Will we commit to wholehearted living for Yeshua with fiery zeal, with a burning heart of passion for him, expressed in part by fasting and prayer and intercession and repentance and worship, all energized and motivated by desire for intimacy and oneness with Yeshua? your redeemer, your deliverer, your king. I think the lights went down here. <laughs> now, we can't do this alone as isolated, independent individuals. In the economy of God, in the economy of God, there's a ceiling in the spirit over how much we can do by ourselves uh, as isolated, lone wolf, individual believers. Uh, the fullness of God is given in the context of a corporate people pressing in together in law, a long obedience in the same direction. The Spirit's fullness is poured out to an otherwise weak and humble people who are pressing in with wholeheartedness to the grace of God over long periods of time. You know, I can't go nearly as far by myself as I can with all of you put together with us, with, together with, with, with me. And so we need each other. 
Even as the Lord likewise dealt with Israel as a nation, as a corporate community. We need each other working together in unity if we want to be part of this Jewish revival that's coming, I believe, to North Texas. The heart of the Father is the cry of a family united together in unity and in oneness. That's when the Lord is going to pour out his fullness. Indeed, in Acts chapter 2, we read how the believers, believers were all together in unity in one accord. And then the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Lord is looking for voluntary lovers, lovers of Yeshua, pressing in together, fasting and praying together as a corporate body of Messianic believers. Because wholehearted Yeshua followers, corporately standing in the gap in intercession and worship, can change history. Joel says, when this happens, God may relent from his judgments. Because God rules his kingdom and administers his blessing through divine partnership with his people. Beloved, your prayers make a difference. Your corporate prayers during the worship service and in your afternoon classes and in your weekly times of prayer make a difference. If we act together in prayer and fasting and intercession, crying out to the Lord, the scriptures say we can perhaps minimize the judgment and release a blessing. So on the overhead, committed believers... Coming together in repentance and contrition and intercession, flowing out of intimacy with Yeshua, can change human history. That's the message of the book of Joel. Joel 1, 13 to 14 summarizes this five-fold action plan that Joel lays out. And he starts out by calling the priests, uh, the mu- meaning the musicians, the worship leaders, uh, the chazans, uh, the intercessors. Look at Joel 1, 13. He says, put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, all you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Now, in verse 14, Joel describes his five-fold program on the overhead here. His five-fold, God's five-fold action plan. Number one, he says, this is verse 14, Joel chapter 1. Declare a holy fast. Number two, call a sacred assembly. Number three, summon the elders. Number four, gather all the inhabitants of the land to the house of your God. Number five, cry out to the Lord. This is God's five-fold action plan. Uh, the required response to the coming judgment. This is how you and I must posture ourselves together for the future. This is what we and the entire Messianic movement needs to do before the crisis hits. Now, notice how crucial the worship ministry is in all of this. Singers, musicians, dancers, chazans, intercessors. In verses 13 and 14, Joel's exhorting the spiritual leaders to lead the people in walking out this five-step program. The first step in verse 14, he says, declare a holy fast. Now, this is hard. Very few people are willing to fast, other than maybe Yom Kippur, of course. (laughs) But how many of you fast on a regular basis? I know myself, I confess, I fall short uh, in this measure. Yeshua, though, fasted on a regular basis. He says this in Mark 2, verse 20. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from you. Then you will fast. While Yeshua Yeshua is gone, he calls us to fast and to pray. So I'd like to invite and encourage everyone uh, to fast the second Tuesday of every month, beginning next month in February. 
This is when our board meets once a month for prayer. So it's a great time for us to, uh, to, to fast and to pray together. And I want to invite the entire congregation, all of you, to join in fasting and prayer with us, uh, with, the, with the board, with the, with the elders and the Shamashim, the second Tuesday of each month as we gather for prayer. And I want you to be praying at the same time for your individual needs, for the congregation, for the congregational leaders, uh, for each Exiom ministry, uh, for the gospel to go forth, for the Jewish people uh, to come to Yeshua. Pray for Israel, pray for America. We, as the body of Messiah, must begin to cultivate this grace of fasting and prayer. Fasting is a spiritual discipline that has many advantages. One is to tenderize your hearts toward God. We need to cultivate this heart that's tender towards the things of God, and which is energized and flowing like a river from within, seeking after God's heart. And we need to start by simply asking Yeshua to give us the desire to want to fast. (laughs) Because the main barrier is psychological, not physical. It's in our minds much more than in our bodies. (laughs) So ask the Lord for his grace to give you a heart that eschews eschews the things of this world uh, and yearns after him and him alone. Zechariah 12.10 promises Israel to Israel, ask the Lord to pour out his spirit of grace and supplication upon you. You pray this as well. When God promises to pour out his spirit of prayer and supplication, the bride, we, the body of Messiah, uh, we need to pray that we have a heart for the Lord that says, I will rise up. I will draw close to you, Lord. I'll cultivate this gift of prayer and fasting in my life. That's the response the Lord is looking for from you uh, and from me. Far too few believers today are cultivating the spirit of prayer and fasting and supplication before the Lord. But the Lord promises to pour out his spirit on all who desire it. And this gift of prayer is energized and it's stirred up within you through seeking intimacy with the Lord. Now this gift of the spirit of grace and supplication, which is a gift of prayer and fasting and wholeheartedness, this gift is available to every single believer. In Joel 1.14 it says, All the inhabitants of the land are called to the sacred assembly to cry out to the Lord. So look at Isaiah 56, verse 7. The Lord declares, my house will be called the house of prayer for all the nations. And in the same verse, he also declares, I will give them joy in my house of prayer. And by the way, not just Israel, uh, but the Lord says this in Isaiah 56, verse 6. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to have the name of the Lord, to, uh, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, Oh, who keep the Shabbat without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. The Lord says that foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord will enjoy prayer and intimacy with him. All of us, Jew and Gentile alike, are called to prayer and fasting. This invitation is to everybody. The hope for Israel, the hope for America, is God raising up congregations that intentionally cultivate the spiritual discipline of prayer and fasting in their corporate communities and in their lives together. If the Lord will raise up thousands of congregations in America dedicated to prayer and fasting, America may be spared much suffering and crisis. God is calling us today to dedicate our lives to having a burning heart for him exemplified by prayer and fasting. 
You know, we're all going to die in a minute, whether it's 70 or 80 or 90 years from now. From God's perspective, it's just a minute. (laughs) It's going to be over in a minute, and you will stand before his throne. And the question is, will you stand before him as an intercessor who sought his heart with all your strength? Or as one who neglected prayer, who neglected intimacy with him, and never, ever really touched his heart. The Lord wants our lives to be characterized by a burning heart of prayer and intercession. In addition to prayer, Joel tells the people to uh, don sackcloth. Sackcloth was a garment made of rough goat's hair that was very uncomfortable. But much more than that, just just that his comfort, sackcloth was a symbol of humility. Why? Uh, Because instead of the priests wearing their their beautiful and costly garments, the garments of status and beauty and honor and prestige and privilege, they were instead instructed here in Joel chapter 1 to wear this peasant's garb of of the lowly of the low, taking on the form of a bondservant and dress and the dress of a slave humbling themselves before the people and before God. That's what the call to sackcloth symbolized. The Lord says, take off your impressive garb, lay down your titles, remove your status symbols of rank and privilege. Everyone is on equal ground before the throne of God. That's really what sackcloth is all about. Lay down your academic degrees, your position, your status, your your titles. Everyone is lying on their faces to the ground before the Lord in humility. Verse 13 also says, gird up yourselves, lament and wail. To gird yourself literally means to put your belt, belt on. It means to get ready to go to work and get ready to go to war. Joel's saying, get ready for both the work of prayer And the war of prayer. Spiritual warfare. Prepare for action. Make the necessary preparations. Uh, If necessary, change your schedules. Change your priorities. Encourage your afternoon ministry group, for example, to set aside time for prayer and intercession. Have a set time at your own home every day uh, for the quiet time of seeking the Lord. What What are you consciously putting into your daily schedules? Are you making time for it in your daily schedule? If you don't, it will not happen. Joel says, gird yourself, get ready uh, for the work uh, and the warfare of prayer and intercession. It will not happen unless you make a lifestyle decision that this is crucial for my walk with God uh, and my role in advancing his kingdom. We need to raise up corporate, congregational-wide lifestyles that embrace and the priority of intimacy with the Lord through daily prayer and intercession with him. We need to cultivate this practice before the crisis hits. And we need each other uh, to lift one another up in supplication, in intercession, and spiritual warfare, to pray for one another. We need one another to stay fervent and to press into the Lord. Do not underestimate how important your participation is in this prayer and intercession. And how important it is for the person sitting next to you. How important their participation is as well. On the overhead. In the next verse, 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 verse 14. Uh, <clears> the <throat> first thing Joel says in this five-part action plan is declare a holy fast. That's number one. 
The call to fasting is an expression of our wholeheartedness and our commitment to devote ourselves to the deeper things, of pressing into the Lord. Fasting will increase your capacity to live with wholehearted devotion to Him. Fasting, fasting does not move God as much as it moves you. It moves your heart uh, on the overhead. Fasting tenderizes your heart and makes you more spiritually sensitive to hear from the Lord. Fasting increases your capacity to receive from the Lord and to give yourself back to Him. Fasting energizes your heart to seek intimacy with Yeshua. The call to fasting is therefore a call to wholeheartedness. On the overhead. Now, you don't earn anything by fasting. Rather, you position yourself to receive more of the Lord at the heart level. The call to fasting is an invitation to a deeper heart devotion to commune with Yeshua in voluntary weakness, saying no to the flesh, that your spirit may seek more of God. It's not a magic formula or or earning something through works. No. Rather, it's opening up your spirit to greater sensitivity to hear from the Lord. That's what fasting is all about. On the overhead, fasting also helps you to humble yourself as you, as you confess your sins. If you want to bring a life that's immoral or a mind that's fleshly and carnal into alignment with the Lord, deny it food. <laughs> fasting disciplines your body and realigns it. Fasting is critical in this capacity. When you fast, it brings you in tune with the Lord and unleashes his spiritual power. Indeed, indeed uh, in terms of fasting, Yeshua says this in Matthew 17, 21. Nevertheless, this type of demon only comes out, how? By prayer and fasting. Fasting also makes you more sensitive to receive prophetic revelation. We see this in Daniel chapter 9, for example. Look at Daniel 9, 3 and following. Where Daniel says, I set my face before, before the Lord... Uh, God, to make requests by prayer with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. While I was speaking in prayer, Gabriel talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I've now come, come forth to give you skill to understand and consider the matter and comprehend the vision. Daniel got this revelation through prayer and fasting. Nehemiah. Nehemiah sought the Lord with fasting and weeping and confessing Israel's sins uh, and, and praying for the Lord to release his promises for Israel. Anna. Anna prayed and fasted 60 years that God would visit Israel and fulfill his promises about the coming of Messiah. The Lord answered her prayers, and, and she saw Yeshua born before she died. Cornelius. When Cornelius fasted and prayed, God sent an angelic messenger and also the apostle Peter, leading to the salvation of his whole household. Paul, he regularly prayed and fasted as a key to releasing God's promises for his ministry. Jonah, Jonah, was sent to Nineveh to warn them the Lord is going to destroy them for their wickedness. But when the people of Nineveh corporately, collectively, all humbled themselves and repented with fasting, the Lord spared the city. Moses fasted and prayed 40 days after the golden calf incident for the Lord to to forgive and to spare Israel. King Ahab was one of the most wicked kings in in Israel's history. Yet, when he humbled himself, With prayer and fasting, God stopped the judgment and spared his life. Of course, the most famous one of all, maybe Esther, prayed and fasted three days, asking the Lord to save them from Haman's evil plot to annihilate the Jews. Yeshua said, when the bridegroom departs, 
the disciples would fast. And the overhead. We fast in mourning his absence and in longing for his return. We, we fast for an increased experience of his presence and revelation of his beauty and for deepening our affection for him. A small taste of his love makes us insatiably hungry for more. And fasting accelerates the rate at which we, we, we receive this revelation from God. As we fast, we do many things. We mourn our sins. Uh, our hearts are stirred with longing for Yeshua. Our spiritual, spiritual capacity to receive more from him is increased. Fasting for intimacy and for spiritual renewal also includes mourning over your sin. The sin that hinders your relationship with the Lord. We mourn out of, also out of a desire to be with him, with Yeshua. We mourn for our unlikeness to him. We feel the pain of our immaturity and the things in our life that hinder our intimacy with Yeshua. This is that godly sorrow. And the Lord uses it to help us bring us, bring us back in alignment with him. We fast to humble ourselves, to receive his cleansing, to behold the beauty of God, <laughs> renouncing everything that would stand in the way of pressing in deeper into deeper intimacy with Yeshua. As you can see, there are so many reasons and blessings uh, and benefits of fasting. Joel 2, verse 12 of the overhead says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Joel is calling us to corporate wholeheartedness. God says, turn to me with all your heart. The Lord wants wholehearted lovers. Yeshua yearns with bridal intimacy for you. The call to give all your heart is a call to, be, to become lovesick worshipers of Yeshua. It's a call to love him fully. It's a call to love him with, with wild abandon, uh, with fiery hearts of passion for him, uh, with a burning heart of total devotion. Joel calls us to weep and to fast and to mourn for our sin and for our nation's sin. We must intercede for America uh, and confess her sin like, like Daniel confessed the sin of Israel. And as our culture increasingly separates from God, we as God's people, we must increasingly separate ourselves from, the, from this ungodly culture we live in. In an age of darkness, we must not shrink back from separating ourselves from that darkness and being a light, being a beacon on the hill. Only those willing to take a stand for the Lord and his righteousness is going to make a difference in these last days as America and the world gets darker and darker. So what's Chaim we must not bow down or submit or kowtow in any way to the gods of this age. We must reject and, and resist any authority that attempts to, to contradict the word of God or his authority. And before, and, and before we can overcome the gods and the idols of this world, we must first overcome them in our own lives. As America becomes more and more apostate, it will more and more seek to bend and transform and reframe and alter and redefine reality. It was kind of 1984-esque doublespeak, such as calling men women and women men and making up absurd pronouns in order to uh, realign our culture with its own fallen state. But we must systematically and steadfastly reject this. No matter how politically unpopular, we must faithfully uphold and we affirm the unchanging and the eternally true word of God. 
We must champion and affirm and uphold what the Bible says about men and women and marriage and family and sexual morality and fatherhood and motherhood and children and humanity and their right to life. And we must not just proclaim this. We must live it out in our own homes and our own families and our own lives. And so in the face of the moral and spiritual decline in our nation, uh, and, and the need for, for corporate nationwide repentance, Joel says, tear your heart, not your garment. He's talking about spiritual violence. We're to take our cold heart and put it before, place it before God's bonfire. Matthew eleven twelve says, the kingdom of God suffers violence. And the violent men and violent men take it by force. Yeshua says, be radical to align your life with God's. Rend your heart. Enter into both individual and corporate obedience. Call the nation to return to the Lord. Enter into voluntary weakness through fasting in order to embrace God's strength. We as a congregation need to enter into times of fasting, as I mentioned. I'm suggesting we're going to start the second Tuesday of every month uh, to to correspond to when our, our leadership gets together to pray. And you can join this on your own, as I said, in the spirit and fasting and praying for our congregation and solidarity with us. And the Lord will give you the grace and the strength to do this as you embrace it in faith. As you do this over time, it will become something you embrace. That's Chaim. We cannot face the crisis that is coming to our nation and that's coming to this earth without us being armed with the spiritual weapons of wholeheartedness which includes the disciplines of prayer and fasting. On the overhead, number two, second thing Joel says is to call a sacred assembly. Call it corporate gatherings. Joel says it's not enough for individuals to pursue this on their own all by themselves. No. Individual devotion by lone wolf believers is not enough to answer the coming crisis. God is calling for corporate gatherings. God's heart is to build up as time as a spiritual family as a corporate covenant community, standing in the gap together, walking in the fullness of the Spirit. And it's typically played out in the context of a spiritual family, pursuing Messiah together as modeled in Acts chapter 2. Look at Acts two forty-two. Every day, they, continue, they continued meeting together, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And one great way to participate, by the way, in, the, in these larger sacred assemblies is to attend the annual MJAA Messiah Conference, which is held every year at Messiah College in Pennsylvania on the week of July 4th. It is a great family time of spiritual renewal. Uh, and and, and uh, make sure you're, by the way, also make sure your youth, age 12 to 22, attend the YMJA Youth Retreat that's coming up in Waxahachie, uh, Glendale area. Coming up uh, in March as, as well. So we have a local youth retreat as well for the whole Messianic movement in this area. Joel says these solemn assemblies are necessary. They're part of God's plan. You know, why can we gather 100,000 or more people for a football game in a stadium or, or for rock concerts in a stadium? But why can't God's people gather together and seek his face? But the body of Messiah in America seems to have far other different priorities. We bow to the idols of comfort and pleasure and personal peace and entertainment and passivity. But the Lord wants to rouse us from our slumber and awaken us from our lethargy and to gird up our loins 
and for us to seek him with fervency and zeal and passion and self-sacrifice and commitment and prayer and fasting. Now notice that in verse 14, Joel says, call a sacred assembly and to consecrate a fast. This means there's something solemn, something holy, weighty, uh, important to God going on. And therefore, it should be important to you and I also. It's not casual. Uh, it's not optional. It's weighty to the Lord. It's a priority for the Lord. We say, well, maybe I'll show up if my time permits, if my schedule permits, uh, if I'm in the mood. But when God says there's a set-apart sacred dimension to these corporate gatherings, that means it is holy unto the Lord, and therefore not to be treated lightly or casually by us. The Lord is calling us to be watchmen on the walls, intercessors. It's a sacred trust. On the overhead, number three, Joel says, then he says, summon the elders, gather the leadership. This is not very easy, typically, because this is the group that tends to be the busiest <laughs> with multiple responsibilities, obligations, and, and, and ministry oversights. But Joel emphasizes the importance of, of gathering the spiritual leaders of the congregation, uh, of the city, of the region, of the nation together. This is part of the Lord's mandate for how we are to respond to a crisis. Now, on the overhead, all of this takes vision and faith and trust. Why? Because the work of prayer and fasting that we are called to is outwardly invisible. It's invisible in the natural. It doesn't look, doesn't look, not look like anything productive is happening, is being done when looked at from a worldly, material, physical perspective. But the real work of the kingdom is often done behind the scenes, on our faces, before the Lord, in the unseen world, during spiritual warfare, uh, battling principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And this spiritual realm, by the way, is actually more real than, than our visible world. But we need to have eyes to see this. We need to have hearts to perceive this. God uses the foolishness of the gospel and the seeming foolishness of prayer and fasting to confound the wisdom of this world. Look at 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. A person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.18. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what's seen is temporary, but what's unseen is eternal. Paul, like Joel, is saying here, we need to, we need to, to uh, mind, we need the mind of Messiah to discern the importance of prayer and fasting and the, the spiritual disciplines that we are divinely being called to by the Lord. In the overhead, number four, God says, gather all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord. Not just the leaders, but gather together all the people to cry out to the Lord. All the people in the congregation. Not just those who raise their hands during worship or those who dance, but all the people must participate and all the people must cry out together to God and gather all the people, he says, in your city, in your, in your region as well. This is God's plan that he has, has for us responding to and preparing ahead of time for the impending crisis that's to come. And then number five on the overhead, cry out to the Lord. Crying out is not casual. Joel exhorts us to pray. Mourn, weep, 
wail, groan, repent, confess, intercede. Now imagine you're being interviewed by Fox News after a huge crisis hits America. Let's say there's a terrorist uh, bombing, uh, thousands are killed, and you're asked, what do you think we should do? And imagine you're able to say this. Well, the answer is clear. We need ourselves and our leaders to weep and to wail before God. We need to gather together in buildings and in stadiums for sacred assemblies. We need to fast. We need the president and the Congress to declare a national day of prayer and fasting where everyone joins in. We're going to have this national day of prayer and fasting for America. We're going to have prayer meetings. We're going to cry out to the Lord and weep and mourn and lament for our sins. And, uh, and we we're going to repent for our wicked ways and turn from them and turn back to the Lord and humble ourselves and intercede and ask the Lord to have mercy on our nation and to heal our land. And then the Fox News reporter, he says, well, that's very nice. I can see you're kind of a religious person. But what are you going to do? No, no, no. That's what we're going to do. That's the primary divine solution to our problems. And that EC needs to become our priority as well. We need to worship Yeshua and to cry out to him uh, for our congregation, uh, uh, for the for, for state of Texas, uh, for America, for Israel, for the salvation of our loved ones, for the salvation of, of the Jewish people, uh, and for a great end times revival. And we need to come into agreement with God's heart and passion. And let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's stand and pray. Ask Greg to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you for these prophetic passages from the book of Joel. And how they apply so powerfully to our own times that we're fast approaching these coming birth pangs of Messiah. Leading eventually to the last days and Yeshua's return. We know these last days will be both times of trial and tribulation and crisis. But also at the same time, great end times revival as well that rivals the book of Acts. When your people Israel and the Jewish people return to you in record numbers. And confess you, Yeshua, as their Messiah, as their Lord and Savior and Rescuer and Deliverer and King. Lord, help us to be ready for these soon approaching last days. We want to be part of this great end times uh, Jewish harvest. Lord, we want to partner with you uh, to see the salvation of our people Israel. uh, As you once again turn your eyes towards Jerusalem. So Lord, for us to begin to be prepared Help us, Lord, to make prayer and intercession and fasting and repentance and wholehearted devotion to you, Yeshua. Make them our top priority. Fill us, Lord, with a fiery heart of devotion and total commitment and absolute surrender to you. You To you, Yeshua, with passion and love and joy unspeakable. And you tell us, Lord, that our prayers can actually change history. Help us to not underestimate the power of our prayers. So, Lord, help us to follow Joel's action plan of declaring a holy fast and calling a sacred assembly, of summoning the elders, of gathering all the people, Lord, and corporately crying out to you. We pray this all in your holy name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.